Hi. Hi. So my first question, um, it says on your Twitter that you're Jewish. Am I getting this right? <laughs> no. <laughs> Is it the right Twitter? <laughs> on my Twitter bio, it says I'm Jewish? No, but like in your tweets. I just, I don't want to be wrong. I, yeah, I have Jewish background. I'm just okay. trying to think of Okay, uh, so as someone with a Jewish background. Yes. How do you feel about Bernie's plan for Israel, especially as someone concerned with foreign policy? I love it. It's an absolutely necessary. My Jewish values teach me to oppose apartheid. All right. My name is Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument. Uh, in a little while, we are going to be joined by Nora Barrows-Friedman, Associate Editor from the Electronic Intifada, uh, to talk about everything that's been going on uh, in Palestine, which is also, of course, uh, the uh, the subject of, um, of the clip uh, that we just watched uh, from our late brother, Michael Brooks, uh, which comes from his absolutely fantastic uh, meal series lecture that he did, um, you know, just before everything shut down. Uh, for uh, for the pandemic, uh, and you know, I, I think that that was a that was a perfect response to uh, to that question. Uh, and I actually uh, will will just uh, say uh, real briefly that I just uh, had an article out in Jacobin. It just came out a couple of days ago uh, that overlapped with the uh, the subject matter there. Uh, so the the title of the article um, is uh, Israel doesn't have a quote right to exist but Israelis and Palestinians do. Uh, and the, you know, and the, the point of the article was to push back against something that I hear a lot, because if you think about everything that's, that's going on uh, as, you know, right now as the, you know, Netanyahu government uh, is, is like indiscriminately bombing uh, Pal you know, Palestinians in Gaza uh, has intentionally bombed, uh, you know, building, you know, buildings where media organizations uh, are are headquartered, uh, and the idea of an independent Palestinian state seems more remote and fantastical than ever. Uh, and the obvious alternative um, solution, uh, you know, to uh, to doing that, since of course, you know, this Palestinian state would supposedly be in all of West Bank, all of Gaza, if we want to like really. Um, you know, go go way out beyond you know the uh, the limits of, of what we can easily imagine. Uh, let's also call it like the parts of East Jerusalem that were annexed by Israel after uh, 1967. Um, not that you know, not that I think that would happen in a scenario like this. All of that put together is about 22 percent of the uh, country as a whole, the total territory of Israel Palestine. That would involve uh, people, the residents of the West Bank, which is this insanely overcrowded. Uh, like, like you know, okay, the West Bank is one thing, but the Gaza Strip is this insanely overcrowded literal strip of land. It's about 140 square miles. So to put that into context, um, Kent County, Michigan, which is where Grand Rapids is, which is where I went to undergrad, I do not consider it to be a bustling metropolis, is about 840 square miles. So 140 square miles uh, for uh, for the Gaza Strip is one of the most insanely overcrowded uh, areas on the planet. It's full of refugees from the rest of uh, Israel Palestine, and people in any sort of two state solution. Well, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank are not geographically continuous, 
So anybody in this uh, 140 mile square uh, strip of land who wanted to travel to the rest of uh, any other part of their country from there would have to have permission to travel through the territory of a hostile military power, which is permission that could be taken away at any time. Um, we uh, also uh, realistically, uh, if you know, if some factions didn't accept, you know, the peace deal that created this, which they would not. I mean, look at even something like. Uh, the you know Northern Ireland and the Good Friday Agreements and the IRA splinter groups that you know that didn't accept that uh, the way you know things have started to you know like look worrying again there so there would absolutely be factions there that did not accept this deal uh, if any of them launched attacks uh, I think that we know perfectly well look at what's happened in Lebanon since the Israeli occupation ended there that the response would be collective punishment sending in the bombers this is a recipe for having the conflict go on and on and on. Uh, so, and of course, all of this, even this scenario is a fantasy because it assumes that you uh, would have a Palestinian state in the entire uh, territory that goes beyond Israel's pre-1967 borders. Uh, but realistically, in any sort of negotiated process like this, even that wouldn't happen because since 1967, Israel has been building cities full of its own citizens uh, on the West Bank, uh, many of which have been legally recognized for decades, are for every purpose considered part of Israel. Citizens who live there are considered to live at home, not abroad. Um, and I think the idea that all of these would be evacuated completely is is kind of uh, fantastical. Uh the past precedents that people bring up about settlements in the Gaza Strip or the Sinai Peninsula, you know, we're talking about nothing remotely comparable in terms of the number of people or how long they've been there, how well established they were. I think that that would be like a civil war to, you know, to evacuate all of those people. Uh, so realistically, any sort of two-state deal, if it ever actually happened, you know, we're getting close to uh, 20, well, we're actually we're more than well over 20 years since the Madrid Peace Conference at this point. Uh, so, uh, you know, assuming that there was a two-state deal at the end of this rainbow, uh, that would uh, that would be not just this Gaza Strip canton that you couldn't travel to the rest of Palestine from without going through uh, Israeli territory. This would realistically be cantons even on the West Bank, uh, geographically disconnected, uh, crisscrossed with Israeli settlements and Israeli roads. Uh, this is no kind of solution at all. So when you say, hey, how about... Um, the obvious alternative, which is to say that for every legal purpose but one, these territories were incorporated into Israel anyway, so let's take care of the one and give full, equal legal and political rights, uh, Israeli citizenship, the right to vote to uh, everybody who lives uh, in, uh, in, in the West Bank and, uh, and Gaza, and, uh, and then dismantle all of the laws and institutions in Israel that discriminate against citizens or make distinctions on the basis of ethnic or religious communities. And that, of course, gets you uh, what's known as the one-state solution, which a lot of people will tell you is a terrible thing. Say, oh, uh, you can't have this because Israel has a right to exist. And what I point out in the article is that um, this idea that a particular nation state has a right to exist that would be violated if it were absorbed into a larger one or divided into smaller ones doesn't really make sense even on its own terms. It's a very strange idea historically. Uh, did Czechoslovakia have a right to exist? Uh, did the Confederacy have the right to exist? Did the Kingdom of Two Sicilies have a right to exist? Uh, nobody really thinks so. Um, Nation states come and go all the time uh, when 
one particular way of drawing borders or dividing up the world into nations doesn't work for long enough for enough of the people who are covered. Oftentimes, those uh, national configurations are renegotiated, um, you know, peacefully or otherwise. This has happened many, many, many times throughout history. And the idea that it's always unjust when it happens because nations have a right to exist is just very strange on its own terms. And like I say in the article, I think the issue is is really clarified because, come on, nobody is going to militarily conquer any Israeli territory. Like, you know, this is by far, like by a mile, the you know, regional military superpower. So really, I think the issue is clarified when people append to Israel has a right to exist. They append this phrase as a Jewish state. They say Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish state. Um and what I say about this, you know, in the uh, in the article, uh, is that the idea that Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish state. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's fine for Israel to have a Jewish majority, just as it's fine for the United States to have a white Christian majority. But if an American friend told me they thought it was very important that America always have a white Christian majority, and that, for example, our immigration policy should guarantee that black and brown people never became a majority, I would probably call them a fascist. And I don't really see a different reason in principle to see these two situations as being fundamentally different. The idea that a nation has a right to permanently maintain its current racial or ethnic or religious majority, even if doing so tramples on the right to others, violates basic democratic principles that anybody, you know, basically to, uh, you know, to the left of, I don't even know, to the left of Viktor Orban, to the left of ISIS, you know, uh, would take for granted in every other possible circumstance. I don't see a reason to make an exception here. So like I say in the article, you know, Israel, you know, in that military sort of sense, isn't going anywhere. You know, the nation state will exist in some form, but apartheid, which is what we're really talking about, could cease to exist there and it damn well should. All right, uh, rant over. I'm joined as always uh, by our uh, our producer, uh, Forrest Miller. Uh, so, Forrest, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we're gonna watch this in the post game for for patrons. A little plug there, I guess. But um, Michael, you know, a, a couple years ago, I I really I didn't feel like um, you know, it, it felt like the two state solution was the only solution that we were ever really conceivably given. And Michael had uh, Jeff Halper on, who's recently written about this. And um, he had him on. And there's like a five-minute clip of him explaining all the benefits of a one-state solution. And, uh, you know, that seems like a much more, like a democratized Israel seems like a much more, um, which, you know, it's not democratized now, obviously, completely. But, you know, there's a whole bunch of different ethnic groups living inside of Israel, you know, and, and throughout Israel. Which is a really important point because sometimes you'll see people saying, I mean, I, I say this with love. I, I, I think everybody knows how much I love David Feldman, but like we we're arguing about this on the show and, um, you know, he was kind of running this line about, uh, how, uh, Oh, you know, you really expect these populations that are bitter enemies to live together with in peace. They're already, tons of Palestinians who live inside Israel proper. Uh, and, you know, they go like right now, lately, there have been some really ugly pogroms against them, you know, uh, within uh, within Israel. But for the most part, they do, in fact, live in peace with their Jewish neighbors and other... And, and have, and have for a really long time. I mean, you know... a very long time. Since before, the yeah. Before, before... before uh, that, but I mean, certainly throughout the entire time yeah. Israel has existed as a state. 
So, so, you know, the idea that, that, you know, ideologically speaking and, you know, Zionism itself is an ideology, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's a political goal. So, right. you know, the idea that, you know, that that can't happen if that political goal is kind of uh, taken away is, 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 I mean, it, it's ridiculous to think that they, you know, that a democratized state um, couldn't exist there. So I, I think that that's kind of my, my thought on it. And um, I don't know, I'll be, I'll be interested to see what patrons think of uh, revisiting that, that Michael um, clip later on yeah yeah no for uh, for for sure uh but uh in uh in just a few minutes um we are going to uh to bring on our first guest but uh before uh, nora comes on there are a couple things that we need to do first uh so um so i guess first things first uh let's watch uh the um the preview for uh this week's episode uh thursday episode for patrons um which is a uh, an interview with uh, with Nick Manley uh, about um, you know about like chess and the Cold War, which is a subject that was like he kind of had to sell me on a little bit, you know, to to do this. But I'm I'm glad that we did. It was a really interesting conversation. So let's uh, let's watch that. Come back, hit a few more things, and then let's bring Nora on. All right, I am now joined. Uh, by Nick Manley, uh, who is a returning guest. Uh, he, uh, he was on uh, the, well, not a episode, because uh, I don't think we put it on the uh, podcast feed, but he was on the YouTube channel uh, before uh, last year uh, to debate me about whether there's anything valuable or, or sort of uh, worthwhile in the philosophy of Ayn Rand. Uh, and Nick is somebody who I've known at least in an online way for for a long time and we've always had you know friendly and informative uh debates about stuff like that uh but nick uh is also uh quite apart from his political or philosophical views uh he definitely the person i know who knows the most about chess uh and uh and that's also a context of i've interacted with him in he's uh i, I you know i suck at it but he's tried to make me better uh so in any case, uh, and he had this idea a while back, uh, you know, for for an episode where we talk about the history of Soviet chess, and and I have to I, I have to admit, like at, at, at first, you know, I, I, I didn't, I think, I think maybe my first reaction was, well, I don't, I don't know, I mean, like I, I don't, I, like I'm, I'm sure, you know, I mean, I find Russian history as interesting as anybody does, but I mean, as far as like sort of political you know, relevance to, uh, you know, to what we do here, you know, I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a tanky. My, my first reaction to, to most mentions of, you know, of the Soviet Union is, is nothing to do with us, right? That's not what I, you know, that's not what I mean by socialism. But actually, I, the more I thought about it, the more I thought this would be interesting, and it, it actually kind of reminded me of a passage in an essay that I read many years ago uh, by uh, Leon Trotsky during the Russian Civil War, uh, where Trotsky is responding to people who who said, well, it's bad to have like a sort of uh, consolidated army that would fight the war in a usual way, because as a new like worker state, you know, it should have its own form of, of organization. And he said, well, no, this is confused. The the way you know the laws of war don't vary based on the social character of the of the combatants. Of course, you could um, you could write a whole history of class societies, of feudalism and capitalism and stuff by talking about uh, about military history and how armies worked. But he said that doesn't mean there's like a specifically like 
proletariat or socialist way to organize an army. And then his analogy at the end of the passage was you could also write a history of, um, of, of the world and class societies in terms of chess, but that doesn't mean there's a specifically socialist way to way to play chess. Uh, and, uh, and, that, um, and, and that, I think, made me think the more I thought about this actually might be an interesting little window into, uh, into thinking about the Soviet Union, the Cold War, and, and anyway, it's interesting history in itself. So uh, thank you for coming back, Nick. Yeah, I'm glad to be back. And so feel free to interject at any point. I wrote down some notes and I have some stuff in my memory that I'm counting on um, using. But I mean, to start with, there was there was chess, there was a chess world and a community in Russia before the Bolshevik revolution and before the existence of the Soviet Union. And in fact, um, Tsar Nicholas II crowned the, crowned the first five players, I think in St. Petersburg, although people might want to Google that, in 1914 or something, um, the title Grandmaster originates from the Tsar giving that to five, pointing, uh, bestowing it on five different, five world-class players. There might even have been a tournament or something going on. So Russia was already figuring in chess history before the Bolsheviks and Lenin uh, carried out their revolution. So um, some of the names would be, and sometimes it's spelled with a T and sometimes spelled with a C. And I don't always have the greatest pronunciation, but it's like Tagorin or Chigorin. Um, mm -hmm. This book right here, that's the guy I'm thinking of. So mm -hmm. in case anyone wants to see the spelling. And there was a Russian player who, who came from a landowning father and a, according to Soltis, Oh, he had a landowning father, and I'm almost directly quoting him in a textile Harris for a mother. I'm pretty much directly quoting him or him. And his father was a member of the Duma, and he so he was of aristocratic background. And Alexander Aliakin was the fourth world champion and one of the top players of all time. And he was he was uh, playing in Russia and developing in Russia um, uh, before the Bolshevik Revolution. And part of what I'll talk about is how that changed things for him, given his class background and um, what he had to navigate in terms of the authorities uh, and the post czar situation in terms of the Civil War and yeah. the uh, the uh, greater suspiciousness and uh, fear and the suspiciousness, obviously not completely unfounded, that some people who had lost their status and stuff would fight. Uh, to keep their class privilege and mm -hmm. keep their class as like the white armies right. so um so yeah so that kind of gives like a a, a historical background to it and sure. so the bolsheviks they inherit a chess world that's been shaped i guess put it in marxist terms by feudalism and capitalism and according to wikipedia which i've been told is as accurate as the there's a study that's as accurate as the encyclopedia Britannica. Mm -hmm. it, um, before the Bolshevik Revolution, chess and chess culture was predominantly, as any Marxist might figure, uh, a, a, a bourgeoisie or a, a like landed nobility kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So the Bolsheviks, leisure time, right? Yeah, the people who had the leisure time, and yeah, in other words, to play chess. Sure. And the Bolsheviks 
I don't know all the nitty gritty details. Um, um, I know they set up an authority to oversee sports in general, uh. and um, they did they did take over the. I mean, chess fell under that became mm-hmm. became a community that they sought to direct in, um, or that they sought to regulate and and direct and subsidize like a lot of areas of life. But um, but what I found really interesting is there's a quote in Andrew Soltis's Soviet Chess, and I forget the or 1917 to 1991, which is like a really classic history. It also has over 200 games with annotations, some of which never been before published in the West. But um, is there, there's a quote from a Soviet official, I think it's near the beginning in the 1920s, saying that they don't aim to create like an individual who's going to like triumph like Bobby Fischer did for the uh, American World Chess Championship. They, you know, their their aim is to like bring chess to the masses or chess make, you know, it's a radically egalitarian aim of chess being a mass phenomenon and chess culture being available and not this one individual that stands out and conquers the world chess championship, which which raises an interesting question because as Soltis notes, um, and I think and it reaches its it reaches its its golden era in the 1950s where the Soviets are really, really dominating international chess. They still held the world chess championship after Aliakin's death and the Hague Moscow tournament where they had a bunch of top class players play for the world championship. And Aliakin was Russian, but I can't, uh, he might've left the USSR by this point. But, um, but in 1948, they held a tournament at The Hague because he unexpectedly died. And I think it's been said he died slumped over a chessboard, actually. That's where they found him. And Mikhail Botovic won that tournament. And he's a, he's a Soviet grandmaster. And mm-hmm. so after that, I guess in 1948 until 1972 with Bobby Fischer, the Soviet players, they're, they're elite in ability and such are basically trading the world title between themselves yeah and and so a lot of nat i guess you could call it nationalist and geopolitical pride gets uh invested in that and unlike in the u.s chess with the state subsidization and the and the the celebrity status of these grandmasters becomes uh a national a national kind of like a national sport yeah, so uh, it was an interesting discussion. Talked a little bit about how it played out in Cold War politics, and you know, with like the KGB and the CIA both sending like minders uh, to uh, to to you know like chess tournaments uh, to see who people were you know interacting with, as like Americans were interacting with you know people in the Soviet Union and uh, and and vice versa, and kind of the larger question about how it plays out. You know, like to the extent like that you could explain the Soviet chess dominance during the Cold War, you know, I mean, it might just be cultural, but you know, you could also say that maybe, you know, it's a society that had a lot more, you know, um, educational resources extended to a lot more of the population, was at least more egalitarian in some ways, uh, that, you know, that more people had the chance to do things like that, or conversely, you know, that in um, 
you know, under Stalinism, it was a sort of safe thing for intellectuals to do that didn't really uh, didn't really threaten anyone. So uh, interesting discussion going to come out for uh, for patrons on uh, Thursday. Uh, but uh, meanwhile, uh, just uh, want to um, before we bring Nora on the uh, the only other thing I wanted to uh, to do was to talk for uh, for just a minute about some personal news that is relevant to the show. Uh, which is that a couple weeks ago uh, just just made a big decision and a big leap, um, which is that you know for the last couple of years I've had a full time uh, job at Georgia State University Perimeter College, uh, which is not the sort of job that you might think of when you hear you know philosophy professor. Trust me, guys, you have no idea how much of a neoliberalized hellscape uh, academia is right now. Um, you know that you know you sort of imagine everything. You know, like a lot of people who aren't in it, imagine everything as like guys in like tweed jackets walking around ivy covered grounds and having tons of time to do research and stuff. Uh, this is like no job security whatsoever, renewable year by year, any year the budget was tight, you know, the position could have been cut uh, seven classes a semester, you know, so, so no time built in really to do anything else. And with everything else that I've been doing um, this show, um, you know, writing for Jacobin and, you know, book writing, uh, speaking, you know, go doing things like driving to Florida to do that debate. Um, you know, the like juggling all of those commitments had just gotten untenable and it had even gotten untenable while we were still teaching online because of the pandemic. Uh, this fall when we we're going in back in person, uh, it became, uh, it's, it just, it was going to get to the point where something was very quickly going to have to give. Uh, and it really goes against the grain to give up uh, a, sort of reliable job with some approximation of a lower middle class salary in favor of a bunch of writing podcasting gigs that collectively pay a fraction of that. Uh, but, um, but it's something, you know, I got to the point where I really couldn't do both. Uh, this is the work that's most meaningful to me. So a couple of weeks ago, I told my department chair that I did not want to renew my contract there. So, uh, this is it guys. This is, this is my full-time job now. So, um, if I hadn't mentioned becoming a patron, you uh, you get uh, you know get to listen to uh, to the rest of that uh, that episode with Nick. You get that extra episode uh, every single uh, every single Thursday. You get the uh, group voice chat, uh, Discord office hours. You get access to that uh, that Discord at that kind of discussion forum. Uh, we've also been doing monthly uh, Discord uh, Discord movie nights. Uh, and of course there are also the, uh, the monthly Sopranos, uh, recap bonus episodes with Nando and Waz and, uh, and Mike Christine. So a lot of gestures of appreciation there, but basically, um, it's, it's solidarity. If you like the work that we do here and, and want to keep it up and, uh, um, you know, want me and Forrest to, uh, to make rent, uh, you know, do, uh, do consider doing that. Yeah. I was going to say, and keep a roof over my head. <laughs> Keep a roof over Forrest's head. Yeah. Keep a roof over my head. I'm gonna have to watch Jordan Peterson clips outside for the for the show, and it's not gonna help anybody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, let's. Uh, I know we were gonna lead into it with a clip, but let's actually hold off for just a minute on the uh, on the clip and bring uh, bring Nora on. Uh, so um, uh, Nora um, Barrows Friedman uh, is uh, the associate editor at the uh, Electronic Intifada. Uh, and of course, is is here to talk to us about some very fun and uh, and light subjects, you know. Uh, but uh, but we appreciate her coming on. Thank you, Nora. Thanks, guys. This uh, long time listener, first time caller. Thanks for having me. 
Excellent. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, let's, uh, Forrest, you want to stick that first clip on? <laughs> Jacob the Settler. Jacob, you know this is not your house. Yes, but if I go, you don't go back. So what's the problem? What are you yelling at me? I didn't do this. I didn't do this. But you, it's you, easy to yell at me, but I didn't do this. Yeah, you are helping. stealing my house. And if I don't steal it, you're not allowed to steal it. So no, no one, no one uh, 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 is allowed to steal it, Yammi. All right, tell me what we just watched. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a viral clip um, from about a week and a half ago where obviously you see a woman uh, in the Palestinian neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah uh, in occupied East Jerusalem, um, telling the settler, who she knows by name because he comes around like all the settlers do uh, in that area and elsewhere all across Palestine, trying to kick Palestinians out of their house. So you see, we, you know, Jacob the settler, Jacob, who's got a pretty good American accent there because he's American. Um, you know, basically just, I mean, it's its like the a, a very um, brief encapsulation of the entire Zionist ideology, right? Like, I didn't do this. Okay, Jacob, you didn't. But the state behind you and the courts and the police and the military behind you and 73 years of this, yeah, they did it. So, yes, uh, okay, you didn't do this. But but also, you know, if I'm not, if I don't do it, then yeah. someone else will. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, just, that's just like complete American entitlement, uh, settler colonial, you know, mind mindset. Um, <laughs> she goes like, "Yami," that means like, like dude, basically in Arabic. She's like, "Dude, you can't steal my house. No one's gonna steal my, you know, completely complete insanity." So that was, um, that was, yeah, as I said, like a week and a half ago. Uh, as Palestinians have been trying to resist, you know, Israeli uh, expulsion um, from their houses. Yeah. So what's, and, what's the, uh, so, what, so what's the mechanism that they're that they're using to uh, yeah. take people out of their houses? How does this work? So, uh, like all expulsions of Palestinians since 1947, uh, Israel uses their laws that they write right. that gives them the right to expel any Palestinians home that they want or land um, any sort of property that belongs to Palestinians. It's basically fair game for, for Israel. This is part of the Zionist political ideology that you were talking about. Um, and so in this case, um, the, you know, the, the settlers and these organizations that back them, these various settler organizations that are financed by Americans and Canadians and Europeans, um, they petition the Israeli courts. They say that, the, you know, this land does not belong to these Palestinians. Um, a lot of the time, especially in places like Sheikh Jarrah, uh, the documents that settlers provide the courts are completely falsified. They're, they're fabricated. But it doesn't matter because the courts are on their side. The, the Israeli legal system is set up to favor Israeli settler colonization. You know, Palestinians... Yeah, and, and, and it's, have, yeah. it's worth it's worth highlighting here 
that even uh, even in the cases where the you know documents might not be uh, might not be forged, yeah. uh, that uh, that there is like a really outrageous um, institutionalized legal discrimination yes. here because if because uh, if you say uh, okay I'm, I'm a you know I am you know scion of a Jewish family that was that was kicked out by the Jordanians in right. 1948. Uh, so here's an old deed to this house. So I get to kick out the people who were born there uh, in that house. Uh, but, you know, uh, other way around, most definitely not uh, allowed. No, I mean, uh, just across the street in, in what's now West Jerusalem, uh, many of these families, uh, you know, have they can see their houses that they can't access anymore because uh, Jewish Zionist settlers came and took them over. And there's no recourse for Palestinians going to the Israeli court to say, give me back my house. It would it would collapse the entire state project, which is precisely why Israel won't let Palestinians, uh, Palestinians there, you know, like even access the courts, let alone the 7 million refugees now um, who are yeah. not even allowed to visit Palestine. Yeah, I mean, all these people who like might have like a deed or like a right. key house that have been Completely. passed down since, you know, right. since the 1940s, right. uh, they certainly can't, you know, they certainly don't have recourse to the same thing, yeah. um, which is, yeah. which is, I think something that that's worth highlighting because I think maybe some Americans who only sort of pay attention to this kind of have like a blurry watercolor impression right. of, uh, of, of what's going on. Uh, sort of, um, you know, sort of think, okay, so uh, obviously there are these, you know, territories that were occupied in, in, in 1967, and, you know, I can see why that's bad. Uh, and there's also, um, and, uh, and you know, okay, maybe when the state was first founded, you know, there's this ethnic cleansing, I can see why that's bad, right? But like, they, they sort of think that that's, that's it, right? I mean, like right. those are the sort of, two issues that like put together make up the uh, the Palestinian complaint mm -hmm. and uh, one of the things that leaves out uh, is the fact that it's that within you know within the green line within Israel proper uh, you know it's it's not like it's not even like you might say of many nations where that where there's like some sort of you know ethnic majority uh, you know like minority underclass situation where you might say okay there are various disparities. There are various informal ways that you know people are being discriminated against. No, I mean in this case, it's yeah. like really institutionalized and really completely. completely. I mean, for Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel, those who are inside the Green Line, you know, uh, they are subjected to more than sixty six zero laws on the books um, that legally discriminate against them in terms of housing and social services and infrastructure and education. Um, it is, I mean, it's, it's legalized discrimination and that's why it is a very apt uh, word to, to use the word apartheid as Human Rights Watch, as, as Bet Selim, as Palestinian human rights, uh, you know, organizations for the last 70 years have called it. Um, it is institutionalized, it is legalized discrimination. And then you have the, the Palestinians in the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip um, who have no rights at all uh, when it comes to, you know, Israel. I mean, they can't even access Israeli courts. You know, they're, the people in the West Bank uh, are subjected to Israeli military courts while their neighbors 
in this settlement uh, are, you know, they, they connect, they're Israeli citizens, they get all the social services, and they go to Israeli civilian courts. So you have two sets of laws for two populations. Under any other circumstance, this would be clear apartheid and it would be condemned by the international community. But because it's Israel, right. it gets an exception. Yeah. Uh, so let's. I want to. I want to dig into this because I, I. I don't. You know. I don't want anybody to be able to like watch this or listen to it and think, okay, I, I heard some like, you know, vague claims, but like maybe you know maybe this is overheated or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like 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 like. You give me some examples of those. Um, uh, of of some well, like some of the things that those sixty laws that you're uh, that you're talking about. So for people who are like so for for Palestinians who. Um, you know who are actually uh, who are actually citizens of Israel, uh, yeah. like, which which by and and by the way, I mean just to give people a very small sense of this, um, yeah, you know because like sometimes it really seems like weirdly backwards, like I, I like in the way it's portrayed in yeah. in in, uh, in U.S. discourse, like even even when people like have, have good politics and they're trying to say something good, like it's it's still it still feels kind of through the looking glass because they'll say right. things like oh. Um, you know, even trying to show how legitimate, you know, how the complaint is, right? They'll say, oh, they'll make these comparisons like Black Lives Matter and things like that. But like, right. you know, for example, it wasn't the case that as recently as the 1990s in the United States uh, that, um, you know, Americans were all forced to carry around ID cards uh, that said whether they were white or black to make sure that no, uh, no light-skinned black people could pass. Uh, and, and that is exactly, you know, I mean, my understanding is that they sort of changed that part of the ID card, but like, it's, it's, it's a little muddy, but like, uh, but, you know, for, for the overwhelming majority of the history of the state of Israel, again, certainly as relevant recently as the nineties, early two thousands, uh, everybody's, everybody's mandatory ID card said, yeah. uh, you know, whether they were Jewish or Arab, Arab on it. Yeah. Uh, which is the sort of thing that you know you you really don't get a lot of in multicultural democracies. <laughs> no, no, you know, as you were talking about before before I came on, um, you know, Israel Israel is is a democratic state if you're white right. and Jewish. Right. Fine, total. You can have total democracy if you're not Jewish, if you're not white, even because a lot of discrimination happens against uh, Mizrahi, you know, Arab Jews, um, Ethiopian Jews. Right. Uh, yeah, and, and it, it, you can't have a religious ethnocentric state and call it a democracy. Like you can have one or the other. You cannot have both. You cannot have both. It's not a Jewish democratic state. It is a, a, an apartheid settler colonial ideological state. Um, so when we talk about the discriminatory laws, so I'm reading from this wonderful organization, uh, Adala, which is based uh, in Haifa. And they're a, an organization for uh, Palestinian, you know, kind, kind of like a, a rights organization for Palestinian citizens of Israel. I'm just going to read a little bit because there's so many. So there are over 65 Israeli laws uh, that discriminate directly or indirectly against Palestinian citizens uh, in Israel and or Palestinian residents of the occupied Palestinian territory on the basis of their national belonging. The discrimination in these laws is either explicit, discrimination on its face, or more often the laws are worded in a seemingly neutral manner but have or will likely have a disparate impact on Palestinians in their implementation. So then they go on to say they limit the rights of Palestinians in all areas of life from citizenship rights to the right to political participation, land and housing rights, education rights, cultural and language rights, 
religious rights and due process rights during detention. Some of the laws also discriminate against other groups such as gays, non-religious Jews and Palestinian refugees. So, I mean, we, I can I can put this in the chat and you can read yeah, sure. all of the 65 laws. Yeah, so um so housing uh, yeah. so you know so so for example um I know uh, that uh, that there's there's something um, there's for example the Jewish National Fund you know which which is like yeah. a quasi-state organization that you know that uh, is is used to, uh, to to buy land and that's that's explicitly uh, right. discriminatory just right just, yeah. just you know purely for Jews yeah uh, to uh, you know to my great shame I can remember like being like a you know teenager and like seeing the uh, seeing like a little thing to Put yeah, in, the like, TEDx boxes. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. and like putting yeah. it in. Like, oh no, that sounds like planted tree in Israel, right? I mean, they used they used that money to really and other money from governments uh, to 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 plant. I mean, they're they're correct about it. They planted trees. Um, they're not in Israel, <laughs> and they used um, they used the tree planting to to literally cover up the foundations of the villages and towns that they, that were demolished in 1947 and 1948 and then again in 1967 and then they used that as a pretext to say we we are you know uprooting this forest that came from somewhere um, to you know to construct a new settlement so they use so the JNF is kind of used as like a cudgel um, in order to expand settlements and further push Palestinians off their land. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's, that's the JNF, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's, and, and that's happening, you know, inside, inside the green line. And then, as I said, you have Palestinians in the occupied West Bank and in Gaza Strip who have no recourse. And, and now we're seeing, you know, 200. Yeah. Cause, yeah. yeah. They're not citizens of Israel or any other country. Right. Uh, right. Uh, right. So they, uh, they have, you know, they they don't elect the people who make the laws that uh, that, that govern them. Uh, those laws, as you say, when they're enforced, you know, that's that's through like military courts, you know, right. rather than uh, regular uh, regular civilian courts, uh, you know. And and I mean, I, I think if if anybody seriously believes that, like, um, you know, that like a Palestinian who you know has like a member of their family who is who is shot, you know, by uh, by the uh, by the Israeli military is going to get like recourse through an Israeli military court, you know, like I, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you, right? I mean, that's not right, right, never. No, no, there's no justice. Um, and it's been set up that way, deliberately, obviously. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, an issue that I wanted to make sure that we, that we got to uh, during this, uh, during this discussion, uh, you know, cause I think this like a little bit of awareness, this trickling in, uh, but, uh, but I, I think it's it's just kind of breathtaking, you know, is uh, since, you know, a lot of this you might listen to and, and you might think, okay, well, you know, so maybe we're talking about things that were, you know, set up in you know, the 1940s or the 1960s and, you know, that these, these haven't been rectified yet, but you know, basically, you know, maybe things are moving in a better direction. Uh, but uh, but let's talk about an issue that only came up in 2020. Uh, in fact, really only came up in 2021, uh, which is the uh, the COVID vaccine uh, and, uh, and how that's been distributed. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, once again, Israel. You know, its national priority is anything but Palestinians, um, and so they were touted 
you know, by even by like Dr. Fauci, right, as like this model country that was able to vaccinate all of its, you know, all of its people. I mean, it was a massive PR campaign that that went into that. And of course, yeah, you know, Jewish Israelis were vaccinated, um, but Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, I mean, right now in Gaza, as bombs are falling onto buildings and, you know, over 200 people have been killed in the last six days, 58,000 people are displaced just in the, you know, in the last six days. Um, 1% of the Gaza population has been vaccinated. Um, in the West Bank, it's not much more. And, you know, that's that's what uh, people were saying, you know, in the last few months since the vaccines were available and Israel was deliberately withholding them from Palestinians under occupation, that it was medical apartheid. That's exactly what it is. Medical apartheid, um, you know, so, privileging one population over another. Um, and so you have this situation now in Gaza. I was just talking to a friend of mine who's a, a doctor who works at Shifa Hospital in Gaza City regularly. Um, you know, this Gaza's main trauma center. In one of the bombings today, uh, or over the night, last night, um, uh, Israeli forces uh, bombed a building that killed the head of, of Shifa Hospital's COVID response unit, right? So, and they've been bombing COVID testing centers um, and clinics. Uh, so you have this situation where Palestinians are completely trapped. Uh, they're, they're enduring a 14-year siege and blockade, which means that Israel gets to allow whatever it wants or doesn't, you know, doesn't want into, into Gaza. Um, it's completely crippled Gaza's economy as they don't have any way to export their goods. Um, and <clears throat> along with you know, a, an ex exhaustive list of uh, items that are banned uh, from being imported into Gaza are medicines, are basic antibiotics. Are my friend was talking about how there's no gauze in Gaza, the, and and the word gauze actually comes from uh, the the etymology is that it was made in Gaza, um, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago that that the Gazans had come up with the special weave of cloth to help you know um, wounds. So the irony is. Uh, it's stupefying. Um, there's no gauze. My, you know, my friend was talking about there's no tourniquets. And, and we were talking about this in 2018 during the Great March of Return when Palestinians were rising up and marching to the boundary, uh, the northern and eastern boundaries with Israel, demanding the right to, to go back to their homeland. Um, and, and Israeli snipers at the boundary were shooting indiscriminately and there were no tourniquets. You know, and now, so we have we have a situation that's been completely uh, just collapsed um, because of COVID, because of the siege, because of um, a lot. I mean, people are still trying to rebuild the houses that were bombed in 2014, right? And now they're being bombed again. Um, so it, it's it's just uh, it's just uh, I I am just rendered speechless by the amount of barbarity that Israel um, exhibits and and how complicit the U.S. is right now. I mean, Biden just, he's trying to uh, push through a $735 million weapons package to Israel right now so that they can reload. Yeah, and 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 the United States has, uh, uh, has blocked all of the attempts in the Security yeah. Council to at least get yes. the- Yes, uh, three a times now, right, right. right. That's, that's it. Right, right. Um, you know, Unreal. This, 
Yeah. Uh, so that that is, uh, and and we should talk too about what those weapons that you're talking about are uh, are being uh, are being used for, yeah. like like right now, like in the last in the last few days. Uh, Forrest, do you have the clip? Right. Yeah, that's the Shuruk Media Tower. Yeah, a 13-story building just completely wiped off the face of the skyline. So, in these clips that uh, you have, uh, like, uh, you know, so so we're talking about uh, stuff uh, like you know, not and not even jut. I mean, like Jesus, not that this would be a right, you know, but uh, but we're not even talking about some sort of like uh, places where only like. Uh, you know, radical Palestinian, you know, uh, media organizations are headquartered. We're talking about like where the uh, Associated Press, the AP, uh, the AP is, uh, and, uh, and and that's been bombed, uh, and the uh, and and not by accident, not by uh, like, yeah. like you know, which not that you know, not that the accident excuse goes that far, even when it when it applies. I mean, I remember. I think you know Howard Zinn's old analogy about you know driving you know at a uh, hundred miles an hour through a alley crowded with children and you don't intend to kill any specific child, but that really doesn't get you off the hook uh, morally uh, applies. But in this case, not not accidentally. I mean, you know the the Israeli and you know government and IDF you know uh, Twitter accounts uh, you know will say yes, we we knew exactly what this building was. Uh, we uh, we bombed it on purpose. And then you know there are unverifiable claims about weapons, uh, you know. But uh, but it's it's the but um, this is like it, it tells you something about how brazen it is that this is that like that like with um, with the world watching, you know, with with uh, you know with it all being sort of you know there, it's all on video. This is all hashed out on Twitter. Uh, it's uh, that that they that they are still willing uh, to uh, you know to to bomb uh, you know thirteen story uh, you know buildings uh, where you know where mainstream media you know organizations are headquartered. Yeah, right. And so, like when they you know in the last few days, of course, Israel's Twitter feed has just been boasting about these war crimes that they've been committing. Um, and the the reason that they're able to boast about it. Uh, is because there have been no consequences leveled against Israel for any of the war crimes that have happened in 73 years. So Israel has the tacit, um, you know, green green light by Western countries, most most uh, you know, strongly by the U.S. and and the EU, right. um, to to obliterate Gaza. Yeah, then like they think they're so cute, right? With their their Twitter feed with all the rockets. 
Um, it's 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 absolutely despicable. It's disgusting. And Israel has the tactical weapons. They know they have the highest form of technology available to them. You know, it's like it's, you know, people sitting in some some office building in Tel Aviv pushing buttons, just as like soldiers here in this country sit in a, a war room in Las Vegas and and drone people in in uh, in Afghanistan. It's the same. It's uh, it's a video game to them. They've so successfully dehumanized Palestinians. It doesn't matter if it's women, children, boys, men. It does it 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 does not matter. Which, if which they're is, Palestinian, they're fair game to the Israelis. Yeah, which is particularly astonishing because, as you say, right? It's it's the something that you know. There's an obvious parallel uh, to uh, you know American imperialism, uh, but uh, but at the same time, the disanalogy is that. Um, is that when you know the American public, you know, accepts uh, you know this this kind of endless you know drone warfare in Afghanistan and Pakistan? Uh, it's it's stuff that's that's going on on the other side of the world. Right. Uh, it, it's happening to people who's yeah. who they know very little about. You know, who right. who are like extremely vague abstractions to them. Uh, whereas um, in uh, in the Israeli Palestinian case. It's it's happening like um, I mean to ten know. miles, ten miles yeah. from Tel Aviv. You know, like it's very very close. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, this this is like the this is like I, I don't even know. Like this is you know this is like it's it's happening. Um, you know, in uh, you know that like so this is like somebody in Silver Lake. Uh, you know, so like like sending you know sending over over drones to you know bomb a neighborhood in Inglewood. You know, like that's okay. the. Uh, you know that would be the uh, that would be the geographic equivalent. Uh, you, you talk, you know, so you have this like level of brutality that's that's yeah. that's reminiscent of something like the American War in Vietnam, but it's happening. But like it's, uh, but it's taking place in this environment where like that first clip that we just showed, yeah. like you have like oh yeah, that's like the settler who comes around and like the Palestinian woman knows his name and you know they're yelling at each other because they know who you know they know who they are. Uh, so I mean that it's it's a uh, it's a level of intensity, you know, having it like be uh, that um, you know that that personal that's that's, yeah. that's particularly disturbing. That like you, yeah. you know that these people uh, who uh, who you're blowing up, uh, you know, who you're uh, who you're denying uh, basic medical care to, right. uh, that you know, which which again is also just like that example. I mean, whatever you believe about any of the larger issues here like you know accept all the bullshit you want about you know the amazing peace deal the you know palestinians are <laughs> don't off. accept that bullshit right? it's such That's a waste like, of thought <laughs> you know, but like accept whatever bullshit you want about that and it would still be the case that any uh any occupying power of any country under any circumstances doesn't matter what it is right i mean right. we could be talking about like you know germany in 1946 you know like any country yeah. that's been militarily occupied by anyone the occupier has a legal and moral responsibility uh to um you know to right. uh you know to, like ensure that people's basic medical needs uh you know are are met like in any circumstances right. never mind during an unprecedented global pandemic yeah, no kidding. And you know, just to just to kind of rub it in a little bit more, uh, Israeli warplanes bombed um, you know nearly all of the main artery, you know, road arteries in and around Gaza City, including um, the roads that lead to Shifa Hospital. So you'll see if you look on my Twitter, you'll see a, a photo 
from the Palestinian human rights organization, Al Haq, um, where it's, it's, a, it's a crater in the road next to the hospital. So what that does, obviously, what's it, what it's meant to do is, is make it impossible for ambulances uh, to, to come in and out and, and get the wounded. It makes it impossible for people to, which is usually what happens is people, you know, load injured people into their cars themselves and then drive to Shifa hospital. Impossible to do that. So ambulances can't get in or out. Uh, cars can't get in or out. Supply trucks can't get in or out. And this is all happening under a freaking pandemic. Um, we, you know, and COVID is still, is still killing people in Gaza every day. You, there's limited, uh, int, you know, intubation um, machines. There's limit, you know, it, everything is limited in Gaza. Um, I, I, and and to have this on top, I just, I, I, the, the decisions that medics are having to make right now about whether to let a person in front of them live or die, I, I it's it's an it's an unbearable thought, unbearable. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I know that there's a lot of uh, very not not fun stuff packed into the last half hour, but I, I want to, uh, you know, I mean, my, my goal for this segment is is that I, I don't want anybody to be able to uh, watch or listen to this and then uh, continue to uh, merrily believe uh, the sort of uh, like you know, liberal-ish, you know, view yeah. that like, oh, well, you know, there's, there's, a, you know, what's, what we're talking about here is a, is a conflict and of course right. it's good, but you know, like, you know, right. you, there's probably stuff on, you know, both sides and, you know, you need to, right. you know, like, like all that stuff, right? Like I, I want people to have at least some uh, realistic picture of, uh, of what's going on, but we are yeah. uh, for sure uh, going to uh, uh, have you back for a, a longer and uh, less intense, uh, uh, you know, less intense visit uh, in yeah. the future. Uh, Nora, where can people check out your stuff? So I'm on Twitter at Nora BF. Uh, also, I'm an associate editor at the Electronic Intifada. We're on Twitter at Intifada and on Instagram at Electronic Intifada. Um, I'm also a co-host of the Brief podcast, and we just put up uh, an episode that we recorded very early this morning. Um, you can go to thebriefpodcast.com um, and we're also on Spotify and, uh, you know, all the, all the iTunes, all the things. Um, so, and, and the episode that we put up this morning, um, ha it's a roundtable discussion with my, my colleagues and comrades and our friend Tarek, who's the physician that I was mentioning who, who works um, regularly at Shifa Hospital. So it's, it's, a, it's an essential listen. That's good. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Nora. Thank you so much, Ben. All right, uh, that was Nora Barrows-Friedman uh, from the Electronic uh, Intifada. Um, before uh, we uh, bring on uh, Juliana Forlano, 
uh, want to uh, just uh, plug a couple things uh, really quickly. Uh, so one is uh, this uh, class that I am teaching uh, in June uh, at um, online class uh, at uh, Renegade University, uh, Logic and Politics, uh, How to Make an Argument. Uh, so I wanted to make sure, you know, well, I guess it'll be too late by the time people listen to this as a podcast, but at least people who are watching it on YouTube, um, that I mentioned this tonight uh, because RU will give you an early bird discount if you sign up. Um, today is the last day for that. Uh, so, um, you know, this this is something I'm, I'm looking forward to. It's going to be on the first four Tuesday nights in uh, in June. And, uh, and it should be really good. I mean, I, I've been doing something somewhat similar at Michael Albert School for Social and Cultural Change for the last, like, month and a half. And, uh, and honestly, it's been really liberating because uh, teaching outside of a traditional university setting, so um, nobody's worried about grades, which is an issue that you spend, like, you know, three quarters of your time on. Uh, in, uh, in universities, it's not an issue because nobody's being graded. Uh, nobody's taking it as a general education requirement. Uh, nobody's taking it because they need a couple more credits uh, for uh, for their major. Uh, you know, they're, you're only taking it uh, because you're passionate about uh, the subject. And that has been really fantastic at SSCC. And I'm really looking forward to it at Renegade University. It should be a, you know, interesting, you know, politically mixed group of students, uh, you know, comrades and otherwise, uh, but uh, that should make for lively class discussions. So, um, so as I said, uh, really looking forward to that. And, you know, since this is uh, stuff like this, right? Stuff like uh, this podcast, stuff like, um, uh, stuff like, you know, writing, of course, and also uh, stuff like this, this class is all I'm, all I'm going to be doing now. So, um, so yeah, please do, uh, please do consider uh, signing up. Uh, that'd be really good. Um, Last thing before we uh, bring Juliana on, I uh, do want to uh, just uh, quickly talk about uh, something that came out in uh, Jacobin uh, yesterday, which is a pre uh for uh, for my new uh, book uh, that uh, is, uh, so it's called uh, We Can't Cancel Ourselves Into a Better World. Um, and uh, and that's, that's it's been getting some interesting uh, discussion uh, today uh, on uh, on Twitter. Uh, you know, friend of the show Jonathan Chait is upset about it because uh, he because uh, he says he thinks it's unreasonable that I'm blaming uh, neoliberalism for for cancel culture because of course famous famous uh, Kremlinologist uh, Jonathan <laughs> Chait. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> his line is, well, look at all these, you know, all these communist countries that, you know, persecuted people, and clearly it's just exactly the same thing, and there are no differences between those two situations, and God knows there are no other situations you could compare it to. Uh, so, uh, so therefore, it's, it's not neoliberalism, it's Marxism uh, that's, the, uh, that's the problem. So, you know, the, the foundations of my, like, belief in, in democratic socialism really come from the fact that I want everyone to have the job security that Jonathan Chait has, how we can just, you know, push, uh, push like, the dumbest possible Trump has been a Russian asset since 1987 stories over and over and over again, even in 2021, and he just like, keeps his job. Like, I think everybody should have that job security, and that's kind of the foundation of my, uh, my politics, I've decided. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's good. That's a good goal. Um, everybody should have as much job security as Jonathan Chait. Uh, by the way, I also thought, uh, just quick shout out, just because it made me laugh, uh, what I thought was the best Twitter response to the Jonathan Chait thing about my article 
was from some Matt Thomas NYC, I guess is the handle, uh, who says, uh, who can forget when Stalin <laughs> will be assassinated for doing bisexual erasure to Frida Cole. So uh, that's... Uh, um, so, uh, so there you go. he must have like a getting dunked on fetish, right? Like, or something like that. Like, like just a humiliation <laughs> fetish because like, I, I just he, like every article I've seen by him or every Twitter response, like even the snarky ones are stupid. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I just feel like Jonathan Chait just has to have like a getting repeatedly kicked in the face on Twitter fetish of some kind. Yeah. No, fair enough. Um, let me just see. I think uh, we lost Juliana. She was in the back room. Uh, and now, okay, we got her back. So, um, yeah, so anyway, um, so I guess the two big takeaways, well, the three big takeaways here are one, by the book. Uh, you know, if we, uh, we established, you know, for uh, earlier in the episode, one of the reasons that I want you to do that, but also because uh, also I think it's something uh, that we need to to talk about more. I don't think that we can. Uh, I don't think that we should cede this issue to uh, bulbs as dim as Jonathan Chait. Uh, the uh, the second is uh, is is be be smarter than that. And uh, the third is that we should build a world where everybody has as much job security as him. So uh, on uh, on that note, uh, now joined uh, by uh, Juliana Forlano. Thank you for uh, thank you for coming on. Hey Ben, how's it going? I, it is pretty good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I well, I'm fine. <laughs> you know, you watch like the segment you just did, and you're like, I'm fine. I don't as long as if my house isn't burning down, I'm fine. Yeah, right. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that is a. Um, yeah, no, that's 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 not fun. Uh, that's that's not fun to watch uh, or uh, or to uh, or to think about. Uh, or frankly, I've got—I have, have to say—in my case, you know, uh, to uh, to uh, to think about some of the uh, self-justifying bullshit I used to believe about this subject. But, um, but uh, the, uh, the the we're, we're we're done with the houses burning down uh, segment of the show. We hope. We hope. We hope. Uh, so, uh, want to, uh, want to move on to a, uh, slightly lighter note. Uh, so, uh, Juliana is somebody who, um, you know, we had to have on because, uh, so she's, she's a host for, uh, uh, Act TV. Actually, you want to, you want to tell people uh, what you do right now? Yeah. Um, I, well, I, I produce content for Act TV. I was, um, I was an in the field reporter for them when people still went out of their houses and covered like live um, marches and rallies and, and uprisings and things like that. So I was on the street for them and um, and I hosted a show for them and I used to host a show on Pacifica, but now I'm on um, basically helping them make some content on their live. Um, you know, we have a whole bunch of platforms, uh, YouTube, you know, wherever we don't get kicked off for saying stuff that doesn't, that sometimes the algorithm doesn't like, but in a good way. Yeah, good. <laughs> well, that's what I've been doing now. We're start, um, yeah. TV is actually moving on to uh, being on Apple TV and Roku, which is amazing that they let like real activist voices be on Apple TV and Roku. So I'm excited to see what happens there. So we're just kind of uh, branching out. Yeah, uh, that's great. So, uh, and and one thing that that came out. So uh, I know you because 
uh, you interviewed me uh, for them about uh, about my book. And uh, well, thank you. Uh, and over the uh, during that discussion, uh, you know, it, it came out. I remember I was uh, joking on Twitter that uh, that okay, so being interviewed by uh, Juliana Forlano, who uh, who is uh, does does left media and has also uh, worked as a comedian and as a philosophy professor. So if if I if this isn't a friendly interview, I'm officially incapable of convincing anybody. Uh, so, uh, so I, I wanted. Uh, I wanted I wanted to have you on uh, and uh, and to um, you know there's some more topical stuff that you know we'll get your take on in the post game but you know but just just to sort of introduce yourself you to uh, to the viewers and uh, and listeners uh, and listeners a little bit uh, so so let's 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 just kind of start with the the timeline of those three uh, career paths that I just mentioned. Oh man. <laughs> Well, uh, it started with a philosophy degree, and then I was like every other uh, immigrant, first-generation, uh, working-class per, per, you know, parents said, be a lawyer or a doctor, and because I couldn't stand blood, I'm like, I guess lawyer. Uh, so I did the philosophy. Actually, I went to college, and I remember my first philosophy class. I took it because it, like, you know, checked off a whole bunch of boxes like you were mm -hmm. saying. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, you can study this? This is amazing. Because I went from like public school where it's so boring for intelligent people, not to toot my own horn, but you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I was, uh, anyway, uh, so I started studying philosophy and I just fell in love with the topic, loved it, was going to go to law school, went and took the LSAT. And as I looked around at the other people taking the LSAT, I thought I might kill myself if I had to spend the rest of my life with these people. No offense to people doing good work like the NRDC sure, or sure. ACLU, I didn't, none of those people were apparently in my LSAT cohort. And so I was completely turned off. And um, I just went about my life, worked for Nader as an activist, all of that kind of stuff. And I realized, hmm, uh, you can't really save the world because everyone in the world is crazy. So I went off and got a uh, clinical social work degree, started working with kids in foster care, started working with uh, adults as a, as a psychotherapist. And I'm like, hey, this doesn't work either. <laughs> I mean, I'm not discouraging anyone for sure. to like cut the cord, but I didn't, I just kind of once you know too many therapists, you know also the therapists are also crazy. So it just seemed that comedy and absurdism was a clear next step. Uh, <laughs> and so I started doing that and I did a lot of political satire, I had a show called Absurdity Today with the Young Turks. Um, where else was I? On Pacifica and Progressive Voices Radio for a while, doing that kind of thing. I did stand up with the folks who the God, the blessed folks at the Daily Show and Friends Show. I was one of the friends uh, in the tra traveling circus there. That was fun in New York. And um, and and then I got a job teaching comedy. And as you know, Ben, I have so I have a master's in social work. And they were like, "Can you teach comedy writing?" I'm like, "Sure." And then somebody retired or had a back injury, and they said, "Can you teach media studies?" And I said, well, I don't have a background in media studies. And they said, and I quote, just read a chapter ahead of the students. <laughs> and I'm like, is this what I paid 80 grand for? Like, you know, that somebody's just reading the book. Ahead of. <laughs> so I imposter syndrome my way through um, teaching myself, giving myself a master's degree in media studies and ethics. And, you know, 
I taught that for several years until I maybe like eight until I did exactly what you did. I'm like, hey, can we swear on this? I was like, this yeah, is go, go for it, go for it. I go, was go, a man junk. They don't pay you. They barely pay you. They don't give you health insurance. They don't even want to give you an office. I can't tell you how many offices they're like, have this one. Then I walked in there, I cleaned it, I fixed it. They're like, hey, this is nice. And then they gave it to somebody else. And then they hired some guy because he had a PhD and I only had a master's degree. You know, it was like this whole thing. And I'm like, I'm I'm out, just like you did. So I'm I'm I was happy to hear your story about how you're you know, I suggest everyone watching definitely support Ben <laughs> as he makes this transition into. Well, I, I appreciate that. So, uh, so, 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 what is this? I guess I have to. That long of an answer. That was a really long. I gave you like. No, no, no that was perfect. When I was seventeen. My mother said, "Yeah." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And you know, and and what were you like? Like, were you and your mother having lunch? What were you eating? You know, that's what's uh, you know got to get. Those on my Facebook of my lunches uh, for. Okay. All right. Good. Good. So people can check. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, so I, I have to admit I, I've got a really vague idea, right? When you say like media studies and and uh, and what was it? Media ethics is, is did I hear yeah, that right? Ethics of like the ethics of broadcast journalism was the main course I taught over and over, which I loved because I was doing media satire anyway. So I was basically like taking a comedic lens and being like, look at all this baloney, and then. With my ethics background in ethics and philosophy, this it was just perfect. And then the behavioral studies with the social work, it was just, you know, look how the media is propagandizing society was basically, and is this ethical was the questions that I would ask, you know. Okay, yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, you know, so, so what did, you know, because I think about like media critique and like the two... You know, so there's like the Chomsky and Herman uh, manufacturing consent, which was like a long time ago. That was a few decades ago, and and their big point about propaganda uh, was that uh, anything that you that um, it's possible, in fact, uh, better and more effective in some ways to do propaganda where you don't just have like one person. Uh, you know, sitting out front, you know, like reading, like reading a script about, you know, the glorious, you know, general, whatever, you know, who's, uh, who's, who's, who's leading us all to our bright future. Uh, but instead you have a vigorous thrive. It's just a vigorous thriving debate that happens within incredibly narrow boundaries. Exactly. Uh, so, so that the stuff that's like they, so that's like the most effective way to propagandize for the stuff that's the premise that's accepted by everybody. Uh, within those boundaries is is just okay. Here's all the debate you can have, and that's clearly not part of it. Um, so. I'm pretty living right in that, especially if you look at the three major news networks. You know, just just think. I mean, the topic you covered right before this. There are certain boundaries outside of which they will not talk, and and that goes for any war. They, you know, it's almost like war is just like, oh, this is what we do. Of course we do. Of course this is what we do. Of course, you know, just the idea. I've never heard the word peace. On yeah. you know some of these places that I've never well, seen. Yeah. Men, you men literally men. have like uh, retired generals who come back as uh, as like whatever they call them, news consultant, contributor, or whatever those you know whatever those people are uh, to uh, to come uh, to come tell you things from uh, the perspective of the military, and often going back to the Chomsky and Herman point. Like I remember. You know, I'm old enough that I remember the lead up to uh, the invasion of Iraq, uh, where uh, the constant um, 
you know, I was an undergrad, but I mean, that's like, I, I actually, I actually started uh, grad school a uh, semester after, like I'd gotten in uh, and uh, they, I had an assistantship and everything for the fall, uh, Western Michigan. And then I, I was spending all my time organizing anti-war protests. So I, I failed like a genetic requirement that like any sentient being should have been able to pass. And, you know, I, I ended up having to, uh, to start a semester late. But I remember during uh, the, uh, the lead up to uh, the invasion of Iraq, uh, there was like a certain way that the media was always covering a debate about it. It's, but the debate never included like, let's definitely not invade Iraq and also uh, let's lift the sanctions and like pay Iraq reparations for, uh, for all of the suffering that's been caused, you know, from the first Gulf war and all the sanctions that wasn't part of that debate. The debate was like, should we invade right away? Or should, or should <laughs> we, like, yeah. Yeah. What, what kind, right? Exactly. What flavor, right? Should we have the right now uh, full steam ahead war or should we have the, let the give the weapons inspectors some time to do their thing and build up a broader coalition. And, you know, the idea that the basic goal should, you know, like should be something other uh, than what it was, uh, was, was, was totally off the table. So like, that's one kind of, you know, one kind of media uh, critique. Well, uh, but, well, yeah, one of the things that I always thought was interesting about that was like, and, and still is, and this is not my theory and I'm, I'm blanking on who said it, but there's, yeah. You probably will know once I say the, th the three important words here that that the people they bring on these um, you know uh, uh, generals turn media people are considered very serious people. But if you bring on someone who is like a Medea Benjamin right. or um, us, we're wearing t-shirts. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like we're not, and we're like, well, how about we just take all of that money and actually beat those swords into plowshares? Right. You know. And they're like we're not serious we're not you know and i am not a i'm not a babe in the woods i understand i'm a babe in the studio i'm not a babe in the woods i understand that you know the world is not a happy hold hands kind, kind right. of place i get that and i get that there's a place for defensiveness and protecting protectionism but I, you know we're like empire building and that's a little bit different than just kind of defending yourself against an aggressor yeah, no, for sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, again, that's exactly the sort of point that would be left out of, uh, of this, of this debate. I mean, even just sort of making a distinction, you know, between, uh, between defense, like actual defense, like somebody's about to invade you and, you know, and you, you stop them and, uh, and aggressive wars that are justified in some sort of circuitous roundabout defense way. So that's like the sort of, Chomsky Herman uh, media critique, but then there's the point that uh, Matt Taibbi makes in uh, his book Hate Inc. Have you read this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so Hate Inc. Uh, was uh, you know whatever, whatever people make of Taibbi, it's a really good book. Uh, and he has in in that um, in that book, you know, he originally intended as like an, as like an update of of Chomsky and Herman. It still has an element of that. There's like an interview with Chomsky at the end. But in that book, he he makes uh, he sort of also sort of decides that like maybe the main thing that's wrong with the media right now, or certainly a big thing that's wrong with it now, isn't really that one because like what uh, what Chomsky and Herman were describing was a was a media land you know landscape that's like still basically like um, everybody is watching the same couple channels and see what you know 
see what Walter Cronkite says about Vietnam, you know, when he's, you know, the nightly news that night, uh, you know, and of course there are lots of terrible things about that that we just finished talking about. Uh, but one, you know, but at least everybody was accessing roughly the same information. Whereas what uh, Taibbi is describing is that there's been this collapse, not total collapse, we shouldn't exaggerate, but like a lot of collapse of uh, traditional media. And it has the effect that the audiences are really segmented. Everybody can kind of um, like order their own like media diet a la carte, right? You know, so you hear what you want to hear. Uh, and and, it, and, uh, and algorithms don't help with that. What's that? The algorithms don't help with that. They either yeah, right. or they funnel you to like right the right wing. I was talking to Josh Holland today on my show. He yeah. has the podcast, We've Got Issues. He's a writer for Alternate. He used to write for The Nation. Um, and and un, uh, as I'm looking at his po- his latest podcast to, to interview him about the subject matter, under that is like, want more? We think you might be interested in Tim Pool's Poolcast. Uh, <laughs> a libertarian kind of a nut guy. And, you know, you go from like a sane human being to insanity right. as your next click. It's, it's, it's troubling. Yeah, because because uh, what the like the algorithm has figured out that that's the stuff that's exciting, um, and it'll get people to uh, to click on it instead of just logging off, uh, and uh, and then you know there's a different form of the same problem that that happens uh, in in a traditional media organizations because uh, the audience is this like ridiculous fraction of what it was, and the everybody tunes in to see what Walter Cronkite says about Vietnam era. And so uh, whatever, like the, all of the profit incentives are just to pander to like whatever little piece of the audience you still have and just to tell them like what they want to hear uh, all the- yeah, exactly. Uh, like just this most recent thing with the Liz Cheney, you know, uh, getting kicked out of her, uh, get kicked out of her seat. It was like MSNBC was like, Liz Cheney, get kicked out of her seat. That means the Trump people are taking over the whole party and they're gonna come and eat your children. And yes. Trumpism is on the rise, you know, but but, uh, that's not the whole story, but they definitely, the fear monger, the constant fear mongering on both sides. Well, well, yeah, because that's the thing, right? And I understand, right? Like, I understand why, like, I think even some like leftists don't like uh, hearing this because they, I mean, hey, you just use the phrase both sides. A lot of people are allergic to that, you know, combination of words uh, that, you know, that, that it sounds like sort of, you know, lib, you know, uh, civility stuff to them. But I think that there's a, there's a core point there that you should take uh, really seriously uh, because in like, if, okay, Fox's incentives obviously to scare old people in all the ways that we know that they do. Uh, like that's, that's what they, that's what they exist for. Right. You know, that it's, right at it. yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> but MSNBC, like, uh, I mean, right now, I mean, they're actually like really in crisis because for the last four years, they were able to like claw back to some better ratings by constantly uh, fear mongering about like just doing like nonstop 24 7, 365 Trump Russia stuff. Uh, and because that's what their remaining audience wanted to hear. And now that he's out, like, like that's, that's a problem for them because like, okay, well, well, shit, what do we do that's still going to get people to tune in? Uh, every uh, every night, you know, without Trump. So 
anything, any way that you can sort of sneak a Trump story back in. It's like, oh, this Liz Cheney thing. Look, you know, it's the, it's the Trumpists. You know, like what orange menaces back. You know, there's like a wave of yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, crazy stuff going on out there, but we don't have to fear monger around it. It's, no, it's, we, 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 we don't, especially if the effect of the fear mongering, the only way to make the fear mongering work is to get the liberals who watch MSNBC to care what happens to like Liz, like Cheney, who's like Dick Cheney's oh, daughter, who's like, uh, you know, who's who's like obviously you know, partially responsible for the rise of fascism in our country. You know, she has she has her part. But she's yeah, no, no, I mean, look, I mean, uh, there, there would be, I mean, whatever you want to call uh, Trumpism, it wouldn't have happened, uh, you know, with without uh, people like like Liz Cheney. I mean, you don't get Trump without, um, you know, like, you know, you don't get Trump without George W. Bush, uh, you know, and and responding to. Uh, you know, responding to 9-11, not by like saying, okay, here's like this tiny terrorist organization that committed a crime and we'll be pursuing legal remedies. Yeah. But as like, we are going to, this is a civilizational threat. We're going to have a global war on terror. You know, I mean, I, like, I don't think that somebody like Trump with, with his fear mongering about Muslims uh, would have been nearly as effective without that atmosphere. And also for that matter, Liz Cheney, I don't remember the percentage off the top of my head, but I mean, she voted with Trump like 90% of the time or something. Like, like, like it yeah, was, it was, exactly. This yeah. is the one time she broke with it, you know, 92% apparently. 92%. Okay. Yeah. I was lowballing it. 92% of the time she voted with Trump. So the fear mongering relies on the idea that, uh, that you're going to, that like, we should care that, like Dick Cheney's Hellspawn daughter has had a falling out with this slightly different flavor yeah, of right. uh, lunatics that control the GOP now. Uh, so, yeah. I think, you know, I think there's like a, a, fear is so addictive. And then when you are addicted to something, even if it's an emotion, you wind up doing things that are not rational and reasonable, like buying a lot of toilet paper or, you know, right now, whatever is happening. That's, you know, if you check the economy, if people are not making decisions. And so they're more easily led. I feel like there's a very sinister thing going on and people look for a strong man when they are terrified. And, you know, that's why everyone was in love with Governor Cuomo because he looked reasonable during, you know, when he yeah, showed yeah. he sounded like he knew what he was talking about when he gave yeah. COVID press conferences. So, you know, what like, which, which is why, I mean, even now, I mean, I guess finally the sexual harassment, you know, took him down a peg, but like before that, uh, which, you know, by the way, um, can't talk about that without just noting how hilarious it is that like one of their initial lines of defense for that was, oh, that's just Italian culture. You know, you can't get uh, you can't get mad about that. Oh. Um, I was like, hey, let me grab your buns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, man. Uh, uh, but but that <laughs> finally took it like the uh, but the fact that his actual policies as governor with COVID were criminally negligent, you know, that like, that he was, uh, you know, that, that he was responsible for a huge number of deaths, you know, from, uh, you know, from, from COVID, uh, like barely even factored into it because all it's, it's purely about technocratic competence or not even technocratic competence, like the optics of technocratic mm -hmm. competence. You know, he, he sounded very sure of himself. He was very reassuring. 
Um, so yeah, there's a lot more to be said about this uh, in the uh, in the post game. I want to do want to hear a little bit more about this uh, this this media ethics stuff, and also um, there's some uh, some more uh, topical things uh, that uh, that I want uh, I want to get your reaction to. What's that? Yeah. No. In the post about how they brought it on themselves, how the mainstream media brought the 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 people leaving them on themselves. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and there are some other clips we want to get your reaction to. Uh, Forrest is also going to be joining us uh, for the post game. Uh, patrons should have the uh, the link to that already. So I'll uh, see uh, see people then. Uh, and uh, and if uh, if you are just uh, watching this and you're not a patron, I will uh, I will see you next week. Left is best.